You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath, but this is Patty Vasquez sitting in for him today. And on the phone with me is Professor Henry Kammerling, Seattle University, historian of prisoners, monsters, and superheroes. Uh, I love this. Uh, I'm not a zombie. I've got a healing factor, stuff like this. But by the way, Henry, um, it's one of the one of the genres that I never could get into with the zombies, like the slow moving, the skin peeling, right. like the 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 noises. What what drew you to zombies? I mean, what is it about the zombies that, that you love so much? <laughs> you know, that's a hard question to answer. I I think there is. I am interested in. I've always been interested in very dark things and very scary things and. Um, I, I'm interested if you think about uh, people who are in prison or if you think about monsters and, and to a lesser degree superheroes, these are all ways in which we identify, we, we draw boundaries around who we are and who they are. They're conversations about us and them. And so criminals, monsters, zombies is a subset of monsters all participate in that conversation. And so um, I'm fascinated by that topic. Outstanding. I, I, I I'll yeah. try to look at the the zombie stuff from a different point of view. I do like the yeah. one with Woody Harrelson. I do, I do teach a, yes. Yeah. I, zombie Land is fabulous. Yeah. Um, I do teach a class called the History of the Undead. So, like, <laughs> you know, maybe you should just sign up for that. We could walk through right the or, from origins to today. Do you do uh, any virtual classes? Uh, only in the context of Seattle University. Yeah. Gotcha. Oh, that's good to know. Good to know. Here's Brian, uh, who has a question for you. I think it's for both of us. Oh, for you. Okay. Yes. Hey, Brian. Hi. Brian. Hi. Uh, yeah, this is a question to the professor. Um, it's been a long time since I studied history. So you really piqued my interest when you said that there's some very contentious debates going on within the academy. And I'm very curious if you could just briefly outline what those debates or arguments or battles are about. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, those debates are happening at every moment in time throughout time. So, you know, within uh, the academy, there are are always a a cascading series of uh, debates, and there's even a field of study within the academy that is just about studying those debates. It's called historiography, right? And so, which is the study of the study of history and what kind of debates have there been over, over the course of time. And so it's interesting that sometimes I don't think the public gets brought along uh, as quickly as possible. And so a really good example of that might be, you know, we still have this really celebrate in the public at large, this really celebratory nature of uh, Lewis and Clark, right? Lewis, the, the popular narrative of Lewis and Clark, which is sort of vaguely a Midwestern story. They start in St. Louis and they go to out, out west, all the way out here to the Pacific Northwest, is that they're explorers, they're adventurers. But, and, and, and that's often how that story gets taught. But inside the academy, now there's a, a much more complicated conversation about who Lewis and Clark were. Were they agents of settler colonialism? Were Lewis and Clark agents of white supremacy for a white nation that was out to conquer the continent, as opposed to just seeing them as sort of plucky adventurers who uh, and, and who had a, 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 an indigenous person with them, Sacagawea. So that winds up being a wholesome story of cooperation, depending on, you know, how you're taught that story. And so in the academy now, there's, there's a lot of debate about how we should reconfigure the narrative of Lewis and Clark, how we should present it to the public at large, how we should talk about that experience. That's just sort of one small example of that. Um, but there are always debates inside the academy about how historians understand history. And we don't do a great job sometimes bringing the public along as those debates unfold. 
Brian, how's it sound? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've been totally, you know, I've, this is news to me, you know, and I do read a lot. On a lighter note, I'd like to recommend a zombie novel. <laughs> I think it's the best oh, zombie yeah, novel ever written. It's uh, Zone One by Colson Whitehead. Colson oh, yeah. Whitehead, who's a multiple Pulitzer Prize winner. Yeah. Yeah, Zone One is great. That's a that's a that's great. Um, that's a great recommendation. All right, I'm gonna uh, Zone One. I'm putting it into my list right now. Thank you so much, yeah. Brian. I appreciate it. Thank Please. you. Let me, let me recommend something to Brian really quickly. Yeah, uh, Brain's a zombie memoir. If he's looking for like that, that maybe this should, Patty, maybe this is just another topic. We just do zombies all day. Long. <laughs> I have a reading assignment. Now we'll do a, a zombie book club. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who's the author of that? Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, it, it, and uh, so it escapes me. Um, but the title, Brains a Zombie Memoir, I'm sure you can find it. I've taught it before in the classroom, okay. so I should know the author, but it's just slipping my mind right now. I'm trying to find it desperately. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. And, and you know, to that conversation, uh, you know, obviously we had uh, we had a, a big debate. It's Robin Becker, by the way. Brains, a zombie memoir is by Robin Becker. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, that does. It's fun. It's 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 a very fun read. Excellent. Uh, but we've been having this debate for quite a while, and and you know, again, when uh, when we had the Columbus, uh, the Christopher Columbus statues, uh, people were protesting and demanding they come down, and, and you know, mm-hmm. I think that folks felt as though it was sort of the spontaneous eruption uh, that all of a sudden, because we were talking about Black Lives Matter, because it, but it, it was a debate and a protest that had been going on for quite a long time. And actually, when I was at U of I, I was part of the protests to fight against having the chief as our mascot, and you know, putting right. images of the chief. On you know on boxers and on pillows and, and all you know and for me at the University of Illinois I remember talking to someone who was a, a native and said that uh, you know they that they had when they said that this was offensive and hurtful to them personally to use these images he was attacked people threw a, a, a rock through his window and I thought all this this guy said was this is this hurts me and then he was attacked and that's when I was like well that that has to be wrong <laughs> I just that, that's all I know is if these people are going to react violently then there's something just completely horrible happening here and that's just where i think i've i've come from that's that's what informs me um and that's one of the things that we talk about on this show is if someone raises their hand and says this isn't right this is how this hurts me emotionally or physically and the reaction from people to say well i'm not doing that or that's oh too bad that that just seems to me that that's conservative as far as i'm concerned i know we're not talking necessarily politics but um just the point of view that people are coming from yeah well, you know, there, there's a there's a, another excellent book, No Common Ground by Karen Cox, that talks about you know monument building, uh, Confederate monuments in, in in throughout the American South, and it's a it's an excellent book. I've taught it before uh, in the classroom, and and she details the the origins of a lot of these monuments, the controversies over them, their long history, um, and uh, and uh, up until today, sort of the effort to to bring them down uh, that has that. The effort, which has been to some degree, to some measure, successful, um, and so I'm on the tear it down crowd. I mean, yeah, I don't think these monuments are sacrosanct, and that they can't be removed and and should be removed. And and but and not just monuments, but like buildings named after people 
should be renamed or mascots that should be changed. And so, you know, I don't think that, I think that as we change as a society, these things should change. And we should listen to people when they raise their hand and say these things are problematic or offensive or hurtful. And I, I don't know what the, the, the cost is to, to making those kinds of changes. Well, it's identity. It goes to this is something that I struggled yeah. with at the, the previous radio station I worked for was that people would hear me talk about whether it was catcalling or it was about, you know, mascots. They would call up and be angry that, well, I, yeah. I that, you know, here's where I'm coming from. But but the person who's telling you that this is painful is asking for something and they take it as part of like as a personal attack as though. Right. And I think part of it is and, and when I say identity, it means that they, they that they're, they feel threatened that their way of living or what they believed is somehow wrong. And we're not telling you it's wrong. We're just telling you we would like to move in a different direction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, or, or we're telling you it's wrong, but that's, except <laughs> yeah. that. Well, move on. It is. So there's, there's a powerful backlash that's taking place. It's one of the reasons why history is contentious is, is that the, the narrative that, that is unfolding in the classroom is different than the one that you've been taught, that you've knit stitched into your identity that you feel that uh, anxious about unstitching it because it means you have to create a new identity yes. and you have to think about the world in a new way. And so, um, but that is always happening. We are always doing that, but the backlash is powerful and, and history shows us that that backlash is often successful in a, in a disturbing way. Jim Crow segregation is a back Jim Crow segregation, Jim, the, the disfranchisement that came along with it, supported by a wave of extra legal violence, right? Lynching and, and, and uh, other kinds of uh, violent action was a reaction to the threatened political progress of Reconstruction, right? Racial inclusion and biracial political coalitions. And that, that backlash was successful and it lasted for decades. We are, in, we are in, in a liminal time period right now where there's a, a threatened racial reconfiguration. Um, Black Lives Matter is one example of that, but gay rights is another example of that. There's new liberation movements going on right now. Groups of people are pushing for a different reconfiguration of society, and there's a powerful backlash against that. It remains to be seen, from my perspective, in terms of like who's going to win that battle. Well, you know, we've talked uh, all week about how uh, important some of these races around the country have been. You know, seeing Sarah Palin yeah. lose in Alaska was uh, it felt <laughs> good. Yeah. Uh, Kansas uh, was encouraging to an, to an indigenous to an indigenous woman. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good stuff. Uh, Roosevelt has been on hold for a bit. Let's put Roosevelt on. It has a question. Hey, Roosevelt. Thank you so much for calling. Meet my friend, Professor Henry Camerling. Hi, Roosevelt. Uh, Professor Henry, how you doing? Uh, Patty, thank you for taking my call. Okay, the subject is reparations. And I'm going to give you as recent as an example yesterday where Poland is asking $1.3 trillion in reparations from Germany for, for, um, for uh, how much they, they were decimated, not only the li- in lives, but in, in, in money. Uh, and then I'm going to give you other examples such as the president of Mexico two or three years ago asked for Spain for an apology for the genocide that they caused in Mexico. And I'm going to also say, as far as African-Americans, 40 acres and a mule. As far as uh, Native Americans, I believe in 2020, the Supreme Court, as reported by Routers and The Guardian, that Oklahoma was almost half, or is half, they, they ruled that it's half, uh, Native American land. So my question is, where do you stand and how do you feel about reparations for African Americans, Native Americans, and the examples I gave you as far as Poland, 
Mexico, you name it. In other words, they want to hold people responsible from these countries and these treaties that were broken. And and uh, basically, they the United States went back on their word when it came down 40 acres and a mule, in my opinion, and when it came down to the Native Americans, because they broke almost every treaty that they did with the Native Americans. That's it. That's my question. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Roosevelt. I am, I, I'm a, a fan of opening up the conversation about reparations. I think it's an important conversation. I think that, um, you know, we ha- you've listed some examples. There are others. Uh, Japanese-Americans in the 1980s got reparations for internment uh, in the United States. I would, I would argue, and the Japanese-American community might argue, that, that, um, the, that the reparations weren't um, large enough. Uh, but, yeah, I think that uh, 40 Acres and a Mule was... was uh, uh, argument put forward in the context of Reconstruction, but never enacted. Yeah, um, there were never any reparations, not just for slavery, but also for Jim Crow uh, segregation and disfranchisement. I think that it's an important conversation to have, and we can find lots of examples. You could layer into that the way in which uh, Germany, you, you mentioned Poland, but Germany has paid reparations in one context or another to to um, to Jews, both with both German Jews and and sort of the Jewish diaspora. And so, yeah, there are lots of examples, successful examples and important examples. There are some examples of, of reparations that haven't maybe gone far enough. But yes, I think it's an important conversation to have and something to seriously consider in our politics. Thank you so much, Roosevelt. I appreciate that. How's that sound? Ready? Yes. Ready? May I say something else? I don't sure. know if I'm still on. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then I, <laughs> I had another follow-up question very briefly. And that is, how, what is your opinion, either one of you or both of you, what is your opinion about our uh, fellow Americans that say, well, I don't think uh, African-Americans should get anything because when my, when my ancestors came, we didn't have nothing to do with slavery. But I believe that they benefited first by the fact that they were brought over here to do work, that, but this country already had people, but they never gave them the, the job, such as African-Americans or Native Americans. So when, quote, uh, white Americans that came from Europe came, they say, well, we have nothing to do. Our ancestors didn't have anything to do with slavery, so why should we pay? That's my follow-up question. Thank you, and I'm sorry that I, you know. I made it too long. <laughs> You're fine, Roosevelt. Go ahead, Henry. Yeah, it's a complicated question, and it's um, it's it's one that, that is sort of difficult to to unpack, you know, I don't think that um, anyone wins by having sort of an Olympics of suffering, like who suffered the most, right? There's been, yeah. uh, there's clearly a, a, a lot in, in our history that, that, the, that we all today in the United States, every one of us, every last member of our citizens in the United States today has to, has to answer for and make amends for you know, and so that's an that's an important conversation to have, and and we can find successful examples of reparations both in the context of our own history and and in world history, and and um, as a way of moving forward. Clearly, there are wrongs that need to be addressed, and the harms of those wrongs, whether we're talking about indigenous communities in the United States or whether we're talking specifically about you know hereditary racial slavery in the United States. Um, and, and the legacy after that in the context of Jim Crow segregation and disfranchisement. There are wrongs that, that have existed in our past that have yet to be fully addressed, and it's why those topics are still so contentious today. Absolutely. Uh, you're right. There is so much to unpack. Uh, we have got Ron from Michigan. Hey, Ron, you wanted to talk about, you wanted to ask again about Lewis and Clark. 
Yeah, Patty, thank you for taking my call again. But, you know, my take on that, that thing was, you know, that is a, has to be a white supremacist cover-up because of the fact that we would never have gotten that land if it wasn't for black liberation of Haiti, who, who defeated Napoleon in, in uh, Domingo, uh, Dominican, and the first, you know, free slave revolt, because Napoleon could no longer field an army because they were decimated in uh, the fight against Haiti, and his, he was bankrupt. So he had to sell the Louisiana Purchase at a bankrupt at a, a bankruptcy sale, and it. And not only that, there was like 115 uh, veterans from the Haitian Revolution who fought with the American Revolution at Yorktown. And they, mm-hmm. three of those uh, people later became presidents of Haiti. And it, it, so, it, again, it's, it, it's part of the whole thing that Haiti has never, never stopped being punished for defeating uh, Napoleon in France by the white supremacist world, in my opinion. It's just on and on it goes. But uh, that's my take on the reason we got the Louisiana Purchase in the first place. Yeah, that, that's a that's an interesting observation. You know, um, I, I like the counterfactual game. You know, so one of the one of the questions is that you know at some point an event becomes inevitable, right? At some point, the the United States conquest and the conquest is an important word there. The United States conquest of the of of the North American con- continent becomes inevitable, right? But at what point does it become inevitable? At what point is it is it bound to happen? It uh, probably not in 1803 when Louisiana Purchase is made, but uh, and the and the relationship with the the history of Haiti there, the intertwined relationship with the United States and Haiti is an interesting and important observation there. And so at some point, you know, America is the United States is bound to acquire the continent. Lewis and Clark are are from my perspective, you know, agents of American imperialism is one way to think about uh, how we understand the story of Lewis and Clark. I love that. I, I think that uh, I, I love the idea of the inevitability of uh, moments in history and, and the conversation that we're having. I know that we've uh, taken up so much of your time. So thank you so much for calling Ron and asking that question. I've got one more caller, Henry. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Excellent. So it's Steve from the Gold Coast. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I just wanted to make a couple of points. And I think, you know, when you talk about things like taking down monuments that depict Christopher Columbus, I mean, the irony there for people who don't understand it is that if you ask someone like an elementary or high school student in the late 19th century who Christopher Columbus was in America, they would never clue. It was the desire on the part of the Italian-American community to be folded into the narrative that is American history that creates Christopher Columbus as an important figure in American history. So people who were not considered white, and for those who don't know it, you know, Southern and Eastern European Slavs and so forth, Greeks, Italians, were not considered white people until very recently. There are all sorts of books that have been written about how the Irish became white, how Italians, how uh, the Jews became white. All of these people. I come from the Balkans. My parents are the first generation uh, Eastern European uh, uh, in terms of my ancestry. And now that leads me to my second point, and that is that um, as much as I would love to have been included in the narrative that is early American history, um, uh, the Enlightenment was not a function of Southern European culture or of Eastern European culture. It was thoroughly Northwest European. And as much as I would love to take credit for people like Hobbes or Locke or, or any number of other great thinkers and authors, um, I, I just can't interject my ancestry into something where it doesn't exist. So how do we balance the two? Because at some point we talk about those important ideas that were the basis for the founding of this country and the Constitution and so forth, you know, you are forced to conclude that 
some groups from certain regions had far more of a contribution than others. And so then uh, do we then look for other things so that we can fold people in uh, so that we can be more inclusive? Or do we look at simply history objectively and say, well, these are the people who did what they did. Uh, there may be all sorts of injustice, including slavery and imperialism that underpin that. But nonetheless, they are the people who came up with these ideas and these concepts. Excellent. What do you think, Henry? Well, there's lots unpacked there. And, <laughs> and you know, um, I would say... About Christopher Columbus, you know, there's some really interesting observations there. And there, it is true that many of the uh, immigrant groups in the United States, you know, the Irish in the 1840s and 50s weren't considered white. And people, be- white is a slippery concept. You know, people, as you mentioned, ethnic groups become white over time. Whiteness enfolds certain groups into it. Um, and in the context of Christopher, Christopher Columbus, you know, like, if there are other Italians to choose from, <laughs> you could have a Joe DiMaggio statue, right? Like you had a lot of other Italian Americans. You could be like, what about a statue to that guy? And um, uh, maybe a lot of people could get behind as opposed to say Christopher Columbus, who the nice way of saying it has a problematic story, right? Um, there are a lot more um, salty ways to express you know, a particular perspective on uh, Christopher Columbus, sort of a, a murderous genocidal maniac, perhaps might be another way to think about him. Um, so, uh, you know, we're always reconfiguring our, our history. We're, we're, we're always drawing circles around who we are and who they are. And how do, how does the great we form, right? The e pluribus unum, one from many. Um, and I'm a fan of drawing that circle in my scholarship and in my and in the classroom in the in the broadest and most inclusive ways, so that everybody's story gets filtered into the American experience and everybody has a purchase on that. And we're we're a better nation when when we draw the biggest circle we can. Outstanding. I think it's a great way to, uh, to, to end our conversation because uh, we need to keep having these conversations uh, with everyone. And I would love to invite you back, uh, Professor Henry Camerling, because I, I kind of want to ask you, and we, we, we've run out of time, I want to ask you about this idea of being woke, that we're just woke. And all of a sudden we're trying to change history when really we're trying to tell more of it. And, and you know, it's not a retelling. I mean, it is, but uh, there's so much more there. Uh, where can folks uh, find you uh, and find out your, about your work, the, the book that you've written? And, uh, and follow you on Twitter. Oh, geez. Um, well, you mentioned my book, Juanita, so thank you for that. Um, uh, I, um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Henry Camerling, HCAM1 at, at, uh, as my Twitter handle, and um, I, I tweet a lot, I guess. Yes, I don't you, know. you tweet, and you tweet very well. Yeah. And, and the uh, book, by the way, was Brains, a Zombie Memoir uh, that, yeah. he, that, that Henry also recommended. Maybe we'll make that our, our book club. It was lovely to talk to you today, Henry. Thank you so much. My best to Kathy and the family, and the kids, uh, Maeve Great. and Dash. How, by the way, how is the first, uh, how's the first few weeks of school going for, for Maeve? It's going great, and she took your advice about not sticking with the class. She already dropped her first class, <laughs> which I thought was excellent advice. <laughs> oh my! I hope that I hope that's okay. 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 Yeah. No, it was. I think that's a good call. Don't, yeah. You know, I think I I, I I appreciated that. That was great. Yeah. There's no martyrdom in uh, in your freshman right. year. Yeah. That's, yeah. You, you, yeah. If it doesn't feel right, if you if it, if it feels off, tell your kids it's okay to add or drop. Just know those deadlines because I missed mine for econ yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't forget to do it and accidentally take the class the whole semester, and that can be a problem. That's also a problem. Henry, have a yeah, great. Make sure you file the paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Definitely file the paperwork. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks. This was fun.